Our scripture reading this morning can be found from Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. They're on page 1603 in your pew Bibles. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. All these coats on and off really takes it out of a guy. Compassion. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you think about the story that we just read, I tend to think of a funeral procession with lots of cars and a big long hearse and it's often holding up traffic and when I pull up to an intersection like that, I'm not sure exactly what to do. What should I be feeling? Oftentimes there's a little, you know, I've been put out and yet I'm thinking, but I'm not put out as much as this person or his family or her family. And oftentimes we stand in the face of discomfort, in the face of suffering, in the face of pain, in that exact same way. We're not, we're not exactly sure what we are supposed to do. I'd like you to notice that Jesus, on this particular day, he didn't walk into that village of Nain alone. But rather, he was followed. He was followed by a group of his disciples, and he was followed by a large crowd, we're told. And that's us. That's our perspective today. We are the followers of Jesus. Whether we're formal disciples or still just checking him out, we're entering Nain behind him. We're following him. And that's the only position that disciples can take. And that's the only position from which we can really learn a virtue like compassion. It's by watching Jesus. It's by mimicking Jesus. It's by clothing ourselves with Jesus. That's how we'll learn compassion. Let's begin back a step. Let's ask, what is compassion exactly? What is compassion? When Jesus sees this funeral procession making its way out of town and he sizes up what's going on, it's a widow mourning her only son, the loss of her only son. 
Luke tells us that his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. That's, that's a very literal rendering of the word compassion. His heart went out to her. And it really shouldn't surprise us if we believe any of Jesus' claims about himself. Why? Well, because throughout the Old Testament, we're told that God is a compassionate God, right? When God reveals himself to Moses, for instance, in the wilderness, right after the people have done their thing with the golden calf, and they are at their most vulnerable, Moses says, God, I want you to show yourself to me. And God does, but he doesn't reveal himself as a God of wrath, as a God of retribution, but rather he reveals himself as a God of compassion, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's how he reveals himself. You may remember similar words from Psalm 103. It was one of those psalms that we memorized just a few years ago. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. That's our God. He characterizes himself with that word compassion, compassion. And as is always the case with Jesus, like father, like son, right? And so time and time again, we run into Jesus in the Gospels and we read things like, and Jesus saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. And Jesus looked at the people and they were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, and he had compassion on them. Jesus saw the blind men and he had compassion on them. Neil Plantinga observes that Jesus had a hair trigger for compassion. Everywhere he went, compassion just flowed. And that's what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 7 again, the compassion of our Lord Jesus now, what does it mean that Jesus' heart went out? What's that all about? Well, Christian psychologist Robert Roberts defines compassion this way. He says, Compassion is the construal of a suffering or deficient person as a cherished fellow. That's a little hard to grasp. So it basically means this. When you see a person who's hurting or suffering for whatever reason, for whatever reason, we should see them not as someone who is other than me, not as someone who is different from me, but as someone who is made of the very same stuff that I am. And we should treasure that person as a fellow. They're just like me. Theologian Neil Plantinga defines compassion this way. He says, compassion is the empathetic distress that you feel over someone else's distress. In other words, when they're distressed, you're distressed. When they hurt, you hurt. In biblical terms, compassion is simply weeping with those who weep. Weeping with those who weep. I actually like the very literal image that the Bible gives us of compassion. Um, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the word compassion comes from the very same root as the word for womb. As the word for womb. In other words, 
compassion is a very motherly act. It wants to protect the fruit of a mother's womb. But then that motherly feeling gets extended beyond her own children, and it gets extended to the widow and the orphan and the stranger who is within your gates. It gets extended to the suffering person or that person who is deficient in one way or another. It's a motherly feeling, in other words, that goes way beyond your own particular family. The Greek word for compassion is very similar to the Hebrew. It literally means bowels or the large intestine. And that's because the ancients believed that the seat of the emotions were in your gut. It was in your gut. And so to feel compassion was actually to be physically moved. If a neighbor was hurt, your gut hurt. Later in time, those emotions began to move up to the heart. At least that's the way they were perceived. So that today we may say something like, my heart went out to her. Jesus' heart went out to her. It's not the womb anymore, it's not the large intestine, it's not the gut, but it's still something inside of us that has moved and reaches out to the hurting person, the person in distress. Now, just think about that for a moment. Jesus, in our text, is having a visceral reaction to this mother's pain. He sees this mom We don't know when she was widowed, but we know she's alone. We know this is her only son. And now he is gone too. And Jesus' literal heart breaks. His innards reach out. And this is Jesus. This is God. Who never had to put flesh on in the first place. And now he allows his flesh to get tied up in knots over people like us. You and me. When we hurt, Jesus hurts in his gut. And remember, Jesus isn't floating around on the clouds somewhere like an angel. Jesus still has a physical body. He's still human. His stomach still hurts when we hurt. That's what compassion is all about. And while compassion begins in the stomach or in the heart, it always reaches out from there. True compassion always leads to some sort of action. And this is where we find that that compassion is very different from sentimentality. There are sentimental people, says Roberts, whose hearts go out to the suffering, but their legs and their arms and their shoulders don't seem to follow. That's sentimentality. Now, for the remainder of our time, I'd like to look at the action that Jesus' compassion actually leads to. And we're going to look at three things here. First, when Jesus sees this funeral procession, what does he do? He doesn't walk the other way. He doesn't cover his eyes because he might get nightmares at night. Rather, he walks right into the messiness of all that grief. He walks right in. Second, Jesus actually touches the casket. 
And then third, he raises the dead. Now let's, let's think a little bit more about those things that Jesus does as we think about our own compassion and the action that it should lead to. First of all, Jesus walks right into the fray. He does not ignore what's going on. In other words, Jesus does not remain aloof. Okay? Again, Robert Roberts says that the opposite of, confa- of compassion is aloofness. It's aloofness. This is the idea of putting some distance between ourselves and those who are in distress, those who are suffering. Oftentimes that distance is literal, but it always begins right here. It begins in the heart. Let me just give you an example. Think of the people in Florida this week, right? We've seen images of what's going on down there all week long. So many people simply decimated by Hurricane Ian by Hurricane Ian. But as you watched those pictures of the devastation, and as you saw people looking totally lost and confused in places they used to call home, as you saw those fellow human beings of ours and considered what you could do, let me just ask you another question. Did another kind of thought sort of creep into your head? way in the back of your mind, in that dark, reproachable place in your mind? Did the thought enter your mind at all that, well, these people should have known a little better? I mean, why do so many people move to Florida? Don't they know that, that Florida and hurricanes are, are almost synonymous with one another? I mean, I wouldn't move to Florida I wouldn't do something like that. But these people, they keep moving down there. They should have known better. They should have been wiser in selecting a place to live. Now, I'm not accusing anyone here of thoughts like that, and I haven't heard anyone speak like that. But this is what Roberts means by aloofness. It's putting distance, or at least the illusion of distance, between ourselves and those who are in distress. It's basically saying, well, you know, I would never move to Florida. I'm smarter than that. But you did move to Florida. Your choices are worse than mine, and therefore your suffering really isn't my problem. It's your problem. That's aloofness. And friends, We see it in multiple contexts. You don't have to look hard. There was an article in the Journal Sentinel this week about an apartment building on the east side of Milwaukee. It's called St. Catharines. For many years, St. Catharines has been a home for low-income women, often abused women, some women with, um, with mental health issues. In the last year or so, they've also begun to set aside a certain number of rooms for the homeless. And the homeless have filled those rooms. The article caught my eye, actually, because I've I've known people who have lived in St. Catharines over the last number of years. Well, this article noted that, that the neighbors have been expressing complaints about having these sorts of people in their neighborhood. Let me just quote the article. It's quite frightening to walk past 
and see what's going on at St. Catherine's, said one neighbor. She and others questioned why St. Catherine's was operating within an affluent neighborhood. I understand that there's a need for this, she said, but there are other places, not in this high-rent, very expensive location. That's an example of aloofness. Literal aloofness. And it wasn't hard to find. This is an example of literally wanting to put distance between ourselves and our neighbors. And it's only possible, friends, when we first put distance between the person that I am now and the person that I was and the person that I will be again one day and the person I could even be right now. And what I mean by that is we have to begin by putting distance between that vulnerable person that came into this world that needed complete care from somebody else and that person, should we live long enough, who we know before the end is going to be vulnerable again. And the person who right at this moment, via some act of God or some sin of man, could also become quite vulnerable right here in this moment. We have to create the illusion that that's not really me. That we have to put distance between that person and the person that I am now. And if we can do that, if we can accomplish that, then I can put distance between all the other people in life who are living in some sort of distress and I can say, it's not my problem, it's theirs. They did it to themselves. Friends, that's what it is to remain aloof, to be aloof. It's to consider yourself different. And it prevents us from seeing our neighbors as cherished fellows, as people just like us. And therefore, it gums up the works and it impedes compassion. Friends, I'm glad to say that never happened with Jesus. Never happened with Jesus. The one who is by very nature above us and unique from us, who is other than us, in fact, the one who is by very nature God, Paul tells us, did not consider equality with God as something to hang on to. But rather, he made himself nothing, and he took on the very nature of a servant, and he became human, and he humbled himself, even to the point of dying the death of a criminal on a cross. In other words, Jesus is not just Emmanuel. He's not just near us, or he is Emmanuel, excuse me. He's not just near us, and he's not close to us he's not beside us he became one of us think of matthew 25 right the prisoner the blind the naked the hungry and jesus says whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine you did to whom you did to me Jesus doesn't just stand next to those people. He's one of them. He completely identifies himself with the distressed. 
You wonder why Jesus showed so much compassion when he walked the earth. It was because he identified with you and with me. He was not aloof, ever. In, uh, in one of the podcasts of Groundwork, and if you're not familiar with that, go through our Bible studies that accompany these. You'll, you'll see what we're talking about. But in one of those episodes, one of the hosts mentions the person of Marilyn Monroe. Arthur Miller, the playwright, was married to Marilyn for a brief time. And in his memoirs, he writes that Marilyn in her life, and I had never known this before, was once an orphan. And he commented on how uncanny it was that no matter where they went, no matter how crowded the room, she could always pick out another orphan in the room. It was like she had special eyes and they connected across the room wherever they were. She could pick out the other orphans. They would just connect. Isn't that amazing? That even in all of her fame, Marilyn Monroe was still at heart an orphan. She didn't put distance between that self that she used to be and the person that she is now. She was not aloof. And she could find the other orphans and she was drawn to them and they were drawn to her. We all know people like this. People who are hurting and they are drawn to others who are hurting. People who are sorrowing and they're drawn to others who are sorrowing. It's like magnets coming together. And friends, this is the way it works with human beings. It's in realizing our own deficiency in some way that moves us to draw closer to our fellow human beings. It's realizing my brokenness, my hurt, my pain that helps me draw close to others who are in pain. And therefore, you would think that we would have a leg up on God in this regard when it comes to compassion, right? You would think we would know more about compassion than he does. After all, God is not deficient in any way. God is not prone to mistakes or misunderstandings or sufferings. And that's why Jesus actually chose to identify with us. We identify well with other people who are hurting when we understand that I'm hurting myself. I'm deficient in myself. That wasn't the case with Jesus. He chose. He chose to become one of us. He chose to take on our brokenness. He chose to take on even our sin and to die for it. It wasn't natural. And friends, that's why compassion really can't be natural for us only. Yes, it, it certainly works better if I understand that my own hurt, I can, in my own hurt, I can relate better to you in your hurt. But that's not why Christians show compassion. Just like Jesus chose to identify with those who are distressed and hurting, he calls us to choose to identify with those who are hurting. In fact, he commands that we do this if we are followers of his. He says, if you want to be a follower of mine, put on compassion. Don't just let it arise out of you if it happens to arise out of you, if you're feeling good or bad one day. Choose to associate with those who are distressed. 
So Jesus walks right into the fray of this funeral. He does not remain aloof. And yet then he does the totally unexpected. He touches the casket. He touches the casket. Okay, that was a no-no in these days. What's the big deal? Well, we said earlier that compassion is more than a feeling, that it leads to some sort of action. In a moment, Jesus is going to raise this young man from the dead, right? We all know how this story ends. It's an incredible act. However, you and I cannot raise anyone from the dead. I'll break it to you now, okay? For that matter, we can't undo the damage of a hurricane either. There's a lot of things we can't undo. That does not mean that we can't at least touch the casket. When Jesus touched the casket, friends, both the crowd in front of him and the crowd behind him froze. That touch broke all the laws of religious purity. To touch that casket was to take this young man's death into himself. And suddenly, none of those people, those disciples, that crowd, suddenly none of them could draw near to Jesus. It was sort of like the opposite of of creating the illusion of distance. Jesus drew so near to this pain that others sort of had to hold back. Friends, we may not be able to raise the dead, but that doesn't mean that we can't at least touch the casket. To touch the casket is to show a willingness to share someone else's very real pain. To take someone else's grief, someone else's distress into your own life, into yourself. To stand next to someone and to grieve with them, that's not going to bring their loved one back. But eventually, it will raise the one who is grieving. It will raise the one who is grieving back to life, back to the land of the living. It will make them feel human again because through your willingness to share in their grief, to not turn your back on it, but to take it into yourself, you are showing that person that they are loved, that they are treasured, that they have dignity as a human being, and that their grief is so important to you that it causes you to grieve, as, to grieve as well. Their grief is so important to you, you allow it to cause you to grieve as well. And so compassion walks into the fray, it touches the casket, and though it may not raise the dead, it does demand that we do something, that we act. Compassion always leads to action. It isn't just the heart reaching out, as we said. It's the feet, it's the shoulders, it's the hands following suit. Otherwise, it's just sentimentality, right? Friends, we can't raise the dead, but 
there are things that we can do, right? For instance, if a person is hungry, we can offer our table. If a person is an orphan, we can offer our home. If a person is blind or has downs, we can offer patience and extra effort to make sure that they know they belong. To sinners like us, we can offer forgiveness and mercy and a do-over and another do-over. Compassion will always issue in things like kindness and gentleness and helpfulness. Friends, when we refuse to remain at a, dif- at a distance from sufferers, when we actually begin to place ourselves in their shoes, we will know pretty much exactly what to do, how to help, and also what not to do. What do people in Florida need right now? Well, I can tell you what they don't need. If a tree falls on your house in Milwaukee, you don't need someone to tell you that you shouldn't have built a house or bought a house right next to a big maple tree. What you need is someone to help you get that maple tree off the roof and make some repairs. And if your basement floods right here in Brookfield, you don't need someone to tell you, well, you shouldn't have built a house in a place that used to be a swamp. You should have known this was coming. Rather, you need somebody with big pumps and a lot of disinfectant and maybe some skills with drywall, right? And if you're a prisoner, you don't need someone to tell you what a judge told you 20 years ago. Rather, you need someone to visit you. You need someone to treat you like you're a human being. And you need someone to offer the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And if you're overwhelmed with credit card debt, you don't need a lecture on how you can't spend more than you make. At least not at first. The first thing you need is for someone to step into the messiness of your debt. And then you need someone who's willing to touch your casket and to share your pain, to take some of it into themselves. But eventually you may actually need, maybe not a lecture, but you may need some training on how to handle your money, right? And this, friends, is where we see that compassion is not, or is only, excuse me, compassion is only one part of love. It's only one part of love. It's not the whole package. It's only one spice in the rack. And therefore, compassion needs to be combined with other things like truth and wisdom and justice and education so that in the end, God's shalom will be the result or at least a head start in that direction. People of God, Jesus is the light of the world. I understand that. I hope you do too. But he also refers to you and to me, to his whole church, as the light of the world. His disciples, you and I, the people following him, the people 
watching him and seeing what he does in places like Nain. We are smaller lights, derivative lights, derivative of his light. But just as he, by his compassion, he lit up a little village like Nain and created a miniature foretaste of his kingdom right here, right in this place, just like that, so too you and I can create a miniature and a foretaste of that kingdom right here in the heart of Milwaukee or Brookfield or wherever it is that you reside and spend your time. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Clothe yourselves with Christ, the one who came near, Emmanuel. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, I usually pray a prayer of application or commitment at this time. I'm not going to do that. At least I'm not going to say a prayer for you. Rather, I'm going to invite you to say that prayer of application and commitment. We're going to spend the next uh, few moments um, listening to a song, actually just some music. The song is Take, O Take Me As I Am. It's a song that's meant to be repeated. It's meant to be prayed. As we're listening to the first uh, two or three times through, we're also going to show you some scripture passages, some I referred to earlier, some I did not, on compassion. And we'd like you to just spend some time praying a prayer, considering those texts, applying it to your life, and then we'll conclude um, by singing, Take, O Take Me As I Am, together. Let's, let's pray. Let's sing this together. Take, oh, take me as I am. Summon out what I shall be. Set your seal upon my heart and live in me. Take, oh, take me as I am, summon out what I shall be, 
say.